Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram and our guest Joseph Brunges. Hello Andrew. Hi Simon. And hello Joseph. Hi Simon. Right now first of all uh, I just want to thank uh, Richard Pickup for being our guest in episode 10 uh, two weeks ago and for taking my understanding of the zone system through the 50% barrier. Um, although, when I say through the 50% barrier, I think it should be more of a case of it's still above 50%, because I think at the end of the episode, it was about 75%, and it's been downhill from that point onwards. So uh, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, and that was a big, big step forward. Uh, so thank you, Richard. Um, okay, so on to this week's show um let's go to andrew and uh, perhaps mm. what we'll do we'll have a chat about what the three of us have been up to and then we'll take it from there yeah well um what have i been up to i probably need to go in reverse order because as the days go back in my memory i'll probably forget so i've um i got in the dark room last night and i printed contact printed an x-ray sheet onto some resin coated paper and I then noticed this morning that James Guerin had shared a print that he did with the same negative, not well, not the same negative, the same uh, film stock. And his was just so much better than mine. But I just blamed. I quite like my sloppy approach to this because I think my picture looks all kind of looks like old Polaroid or maybe some tin type picture, which is very appropriate with our guest on today. So I quite like my sloppy workflow with dealing with this X-ray film as leading to these really quirky results. So that's that's uh, I, I did that, and um, I've been oh I'm recovering my Pentax six by seven. I know it's got nothing to do with large format photography, but I was on the verge of selling it, and the gentleman who shall remain anonymous um, can't now buy it. So I'm going to collect it back from him. So I'm pleased now that obviously fate has intervened. <laughs> and I'm not going to be selling my Pentax 6x7. I'm going to keep it. And I've been working on a pinhole project, which, again, is nothing to do with large format, called Hotel Ghosts. Well, as actually, I, I was just going to yeah, say, no, we don't go you back. say anything about Hotel Ghosts. No, no, no. I, I, won't, I, I, won't. Know, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> well, no, actually, I was going to take it a little bit back to the uh, to the the work, as uh, Mike uh, Gutterman would say, the uh, the working, working man's, man's medium medium format camera, the yeah. uh, the, the Pentax six seven. So, yeah. um, you've 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 thought you sold it. It's mm. now coming back to you, and now you, and you're happy about that fact. So, yeah, what, I am, what, yes. what is it that's that's made you happy about that? Because I didn't really want to part with it, but I knew if I sold it, I could get a decent sum for it. And with you know, just in my situation at the moment, um, I could do with a decent sum. But I'm happy not selling it really because it's just lovely. My, my one of my main concerns with that camera is um, if something does go wrong with it, is getting it fixed. Because uh, there, there's a Pentax guy; he might now have retired down in London in what's called Pentax House. It's the old the old Pentax um, headquarters in the UK and, and tucked up on floor number five of Pentax house is a guy in a little room and he's in his sixties or he was when I last saw him a couple of years ago and he fixes Pentax cameras, but he, he struggles now cause it's, you know, he's, it's getting spare parts. It's, it's scavenging old cameras. And uh, he, he has had my Pentax six, seven and he gave it a bit of a CLA and um, there, there was nothing, there was no issues with it, but he did say that he's struggling to repair such things. So 
I think you know once it goes, I won't be able to afford with the sky high prices of these things now. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to afford to replace it. So I'm going to just enjoy using it. If it does pack up at some point, then I'll sell the nice 105 um, lens I've got with it, and I've got a 55 uh, SMC uh, SM uh, super. Uh, what do they call it? A super, super Taku Mar. Super multi-coated. That's it. Yeah, Taku. but it's the SM. I noticed that Mike. Gutterman had it written fully out on his lens, super multi-coated. I've just got one that says SMC, which I think is later. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I've got the little brother of the 6.7. I've got the Pentax 645N. Yeah, and I, I, I love I've that often, little camera. It's I've often great. looked at. I've often looked at those as well. But I, you know, I need to offload. I need to offload stuff really. And that, I was going to start with the Pentax 6.7. It's the second time I've nearly sold it, <laughs> and it keeps coming back to me. But I could just take off the waist level finder and probably sell that for a, a few bob, you know, because they're, they're not cheap, hmm. you know. So, yeah, so I did that. What else have I written down here? What have I been up to? Contact printing. Well, well there was, you, just, you just mentioned it about that uh, photograph of you and your twin sister uh, that you took on. Uh, <laughs> Don't you start. <laughs> on a, as a pinhole photo. <laughs> what um charlie dimmick <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's 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 the one i think for uh, for our listeners uh, they probably need to head over to the lensless podcast um to, to to see that photograph although you won't see my comments there because i, I made my comments elsewhere but uh, yeah if you do want to see um <laughs> andrew's twin sister um then uh, just check check out the lensless podcast jo- jo- joseph won't have a clue what we're talking about Oh, that's good, though. <laughs> so, jo- jo- Joseph, as I, um, as, I, as I work through my last few months of a job that I've been doing for 30 years, mm. I stay away once or, twice, uh, once or twice a week normally. And so I'm just taking my little zero, not, uh, no reality, so subtle pinhole camera with me. And normally loaded with HP5 because that gives me the just the right kind of exposure time. And I'm doing I'm doing a little series of self portraits called Hotel Ghosts. Yeah, and I've seen some of them on on uh, Flickr. Yeah, I've done four now. I've got another five or six scanned and ready to go. And I've got some more in in uh, in the camera. And the idea is that it's you know it's people think oh you it must be lovely staying in all these hotels you know going out for meals having a beer or something in the evening and after after 30 years quite frankly it wears a bit thin and i'd much rather be at home with my family mm. and i really don't like it and I, and i've not liked it for a long time and i thought well how can i express that and pinhole is just one of those i suppose it's a bit like the older processes like um the, the, uh, wet plate photography where the exposure times there's something kind of um magical about the the exposure time needed to capture something in pinhole and, and also mm-hmm. you know with your process as well really you're ca- you're not capturing a thousandth of a second you're capturing it well in my case probably a minute but you know with, with yours it could be a number of seconds i guess as well so there's something about you know perhaps people aren't quite still there's there's a certain feel to it and with pinhole i'm I feel like I'm not just capturing a moment. I'm capturing a, you know, a chunk of time, and 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 so you see me in different poses and looking quite miserable most of the time, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which which I am, you know, that's me. I'm just miserable. <laughs> right. What have you been up to then, Simon? <laughs> um, well, the, the the first thing is I I decided that. Uh, I, I needed to bite the bullet and get myself a, a decent wide-angle lens for my 
Meridian camera. And and I think the biggest, well, there's two two issues that I've got with with lenses for for that camera is one of them is reliability. Yeah, you know, and can you trust the shutter speeds? And especially with the case of the the ninety mil six point eight woolen sack that I have, uh, I've thanks thanks to I think it was Wayne Setzer and uh, pointed out about the amount of uh, vignetting I had at the top, which, which was caused by um, the front sh- uh, front tilt I'd applied in in one of uh, one of my shots. And I'd actually seen this effect before, and I just thought I just hadn't loaded the the, the film into the into the holder properly. Uh, but it turns out I'd, I'd used a lot of uh, front tilt on that one. It was just a, and it was just going past the point where the lens was capable of delivering an image to the uh, to the film. So I realised that well, that kind of shot is something I want to do more often. And clearly, this lens is only good enough to be pretty much taken square on uh, to the film plane. So I think that's it. Now I'm going to need to get a proper lens and not only that i want to get a faster lens than the 6.8 and uh, with a good shutter and I, I i saw a lens on ebay and i i bit the bullet and i, I went for it and it's a um is it snyder yeah snyder super angle on 90 mil uh 5.6 and it's a linhoff uh hmm. linhoff selected lens like my 150 that's got because we had that discussion early yeah. on in the podcast didn't we my, i didn't know why mine had linhoff written on it and you said it's because it's in theory, you know, singled out as a slightly better sample or something. Yeah, well, there's there's no theory about it. I mean, that's Is that's it, how right. it works. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we'll be talking about uh, quickly talking here about sample variation. How one mm. lens can be better than the next lens, even though they come off the same production line or however however it's been made. And and this is something that's gone on f- for for years. Uh, I mean, Stanley Stanley Kubrick, for instance, you know, he used to have Zeiss. Uh, would they would send lenses to him, and he would select the one or two that he wanted and send the rest back. Wow! Yeah. So it's this is this is nothing new, and it's it's not folklore. It is how it is. And so uh, Linoff would select things, and you got and Sinar select things, and uh, and there's, I'm sure there are going to be other other companies out there. I mean, Alpa on 35 mil, they would uh, throw lenses back at uh, Snyder or uh, Switar or whoever were making them because they just weren't good enough. Um, so uh, so yeah, so that was that was the lens I got, and it came with a. Uh, which shutter was it now? A Prontor Professional uh, shutter, which looked amazing. And it's also- yeah, no, I'd, I'd not really seen. Well, perhaps I had seen it. Is so you've got that. Is that that thing that's attached that allows you to set your shutter speeds without fiddling around the barrel of the lens? Is that is that, that the idea? That is the idea. And yeah. but the the model that I've got, it's designed to work with a Linhoff okay. uh, that that attachment. Right. Um, so um, if which I knew that that was going to have to come off to put it onto my Meridian because I wouldn't be able to fold the the, the lens and have that uh, appendage on there as well. So I, mm. I, I had that taken off. Um, and I'll come back to the, uh, in fact, I'll come back to that attachment. Uh, because, so, yeah, I got the, I got that bit taken off the, the side of the lens and uh, thinking, okay, that's great. So I got it, offered it up to my Meridian, took the lens board off uh, that was on there, um, realised that, I didn't actually have a, a lens board quite the right size, but I got something close enough. And uh, but, but, but I didn't even get to the point of doing that because as soon as I took the uh, lens board off, I'd noticed that behind it, uh, the the front standard the, uh, that had the, had the frameworks, it's there's a circular opening. It's not a, a square opening; it's a circular opening. And the rear, let's call it rear cone of the 
big. I've got to say the lens is much bigger than I did it looked in the pictures. Um, I uh, got that and I tried to put it through the hole and it was probably around about three or four millimetres too wide to fit through the hole, which wasn't good. It was a bit, I was a little bit deflated at that point. Uh, because I realised that I had, a, I had a big problem. Is this the lens that you hid away from Mrs. Forster and, or had delivered to a friend's house? Did, <laughs> she, don't, she doesn't listen to this podcast, does she? No. <laughs> it, uh, it may have been delivered to my father's house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, so I thought, OK, I'm not going to get beaten uh, because the, the rear part of the lens can be unscrewed. And uh, uh, I looked at the bellows just to see if I could actually just take the bellows off the front stand, but they, they're bonded. And, I, and so I wasn't not going to mess about with that. Was the bellows in re the original in really good condition. You know, it's a 1949 camera. So could I thought, take, okay, God, sorry. Could you, could you take the ground glass off the back and reach well, through that way? Or? That's, that's exactly where I went next. Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, but there's a huge butt and that's the you can take it off but it, it's it's held on with a couple of spring clips uh, one on either side uh, they're not particularly big and they're certainly not designed to be used regularly yeah so it's a, it's the kind of thing you would you would do at home or in a in a workshop to, to to change it and then you would leave it that way because you shouldn't go there if you like but anyway so i'll pop pop the things off and again it's not the kind of thing you'd really want to do in the field but you could you could do it um so took took that off and uh, i then mounted it uh, by by putting it onto my homemade lens board which is made of wood and is actually a little bit too thick uh for 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 what we actually needed for the for for the way that the uh, the retaining ring uh, would would hold it to the board, but I just about managed to get the thing on, and then the front fell off. Um, and I realised that yeah, this is it's just it's just wholly impractical to go out into the field and actually just take this thing off. And I would have to take it on and off each time I'd use it because the other part that I hadn't reckoned on because the the lens was so much larger than I expected it to be was it, it's it would be then impossible to actually fold the camera back up because it looks a bit like a speed graphic you know it's a technical camera but it's it's it looks like a speed graphic and and it would mean i'd have to have the thing either open all the time in my bag or i'd have to take the lens off every single time i wanted to close up and pack it up so, so. I'm, I'm a bit confused here maybe just maybe i just missed something but with my toyo camera um mine folds up without the lens on it's just it does really so i just take Whichever lens I've got on, I take off with its lens board and put it in a lens wrap and fold the camera down. But, so, what, what did I miss something here? Why can't you just take the, the lens board off? Be, this because camera? because the the back of the lens, which uh, protrudes into into the uh, the bellows oh. area of the camera, it, you you can't actually fit that through the through, through the, the opening in the front standard. So really? you have to yeah. So you've got to take the the ground glass <laughs> off to get at it. So you go at it from both sides. <laughs> Um, yeah. ah. well you got a nice lens anyway <laughs> exactly exactly and 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 that's i mean the, the silver lining on this is uh oh, that i've got a i've got a cyan rf2 which i've i'm not i'm not making as much use of as as i need yeah. to yeah and and it's perfect on that so i i ordered a, a copal uh copal one shutter mm -hmm. uh, not shutter sorry um board, board although I've, it's a it's an inca board not a cyanar because i couldn't afford a cyanar board and uh, that that turned up the next day which was which was great and i've and i've fitted it on that and i also realized that 
I could really do with this appendage going back on the the side of the lens because mm-hmm. it, I think that actual lens was pretty much or that that shutter was designed to be used with that that thing um, because there's some functionality it just works better with it and what it what it does it's designed to sit on a linoff so that which is obviously smaller than the than mm-hmm. my f2 so that it would part of it would stick out outside of the standard so you'd actually be able to see it from the side and you could actually see uh, the aperture setting that you were you were at yeah that's great um, I, I do struggle i have to say i'll come on i'll i'd like to talk about that in a minute seeing the the rings especially with my dodgy eyesight you know yeah, yeah. well it's 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 it'd be really useful on one of those the downside is it's the the, the board yeah. on the sign is it, it's too big so you, you you can't actually use it in the way it was designed, but the, it's got another feature on it. Uh, there's like a little uh, lever, shall we say, a pull lever on the top of this appendage that if you lift it up, you get to see your depth of field preview and you lift it up to a second notch, it opens opens the lens up. And I find that that is really good uh, yeah. because you're not sort of furking around trying to find the button that opens opens the, the lens yeah. up. You just literally just pull the thing up and you've got it. What's really... What's really um made it even worse for me now as i did share a picture to i think probably the large format photography facebook group i've been after a recessed lens board for my toyo 45a because when i shoot with the my 90 millimeter fuji f8 and i have my uh, 6x17 roll film back on i i can't close the uh, bellows uh, enough you know i need the recess because this film holder sticks out quite a long way at the back. So now I've got a, a recessed lens board, which I think is probably 14 mil or something like that. And I'd, they, I could I could have had one from Hong Kong, I think, for about 50 quid, or some original ones I saw for about 70 or something. Anyway, I found a guy in Italy who was uh, 3D printing them for 14 pounds delivered, or I might have paid two quid delivery. And I thought, well, I'm not wasting a lot of money. So I took a punt and uh, got it through the post, and I... I I stuck it on the camera, and I thought, well, that's, I have enough trouble seeing the uh, F setting and working out where the, where the shutter release is and all that stuff on a, on a normal one. Now I can barely see anything. So I, I, I put an appeal out saying, surely there must be some little right-angle adapter that I can use to connect the, sh- the cable release, and of course there is. And, and then Mike Walker, good old Mike Walker, chimed up because he had some for sale. And, uh, and then I think he, he kind of, Mike, you, you suggested that my recessed lens board might not be light proof, <laughs> but it, it is. I've taken it in the dark room with a, a strong LED light in and I, and I waited five or 10 minutes for my eyes to adjust and I can't see any light coming through. So uh, yeah, so I've got this le- recessed lens board, but I, I find it really hard to read the, uh, the settings, but I guess that's, you know, what do you do? It's a recessed lens board. Any any hints and tips for me, Joseph or Simon? Well, um, I guess no. Um, the I mean, I have a Chamonix four x five, which has a what they call, their bellows has a like a it's it's kind of a hybrid. It, I mean, the the size bellows you have can also help. Yeah. Um, if you're shooting really wide, a lot of people go to a bag bellows. Bag that, bellows. Well, you can do that with the Sinar. I, when I had a Sinar, I, I had a bag bellows. That was what I liked about it. The Sinar system, the F and the, uh, starting off with the F, I mean, it, it's so modular, isn't it? You can mix and match. You can take bag, you can put bag bellows on and, and then th- that bad boy closes up really close, doesn't it then? 
And um, I've got a 90 millimeter, uh, two 90 millimeters, sorry, two two lenses. One's the 6.8 Linhoff one like you guys have. And the other is I got, I got my hands on a Kaltar, which I think is kind of a cheaper Rodenstock lens. It's a 4.5 90, mil, 90 millimeter. And that thing's the massive front on the big, you know, big and honking. But the but rear stand, the rear element doesn't seem to be any bigger than the one that you've got there um, trying to mount on your meridian is that what it yeah, is yeah that's that's right yeah. that's right but I the mean, um that little extra baggy part of my chamonix um bellows is just enough to make sure that it it doesn't get in the way and there's no problems yeah. with getting it in and out of the lens of the i think i think i'm just gonna have camera. to put up with it i'll get one of those little adapters to allow me at least to use the cable release and i think if i i'm so badly short-sighted i find that if i take my specs off I can then get quite close to things. So I don't really need a focusing loop much because I can go under the hood, take my glasses off, and then I can, my, I can focus within about an inch and a half of the, <laughs> of the screen. So, uh, yeah, that's good. This, being challenged with my eyesight is, uh, is a bit of a result. Yeah, it would certainly help with that. So um, I'll, put up, I'll put up with it, I think, my recessed lens board. Yeah. Well, um, I was, I was going to say the other thing about the going for this huge uh, uh, lens, which I just didn't realise how large it was, is because I just I wanted a brighter viewfinder um, because mm. I've been struggling uh, using that that six point eight lens, and yeah. I, I posted some pictures in our uh, Facebook group, uh, Large Format Photography Podcast Facebook group, showing some uh, comparative uh, brightness uh, of the Sinar, um ground glass versus my meridian uh, mm-hmm. with the uh, the woolen sack versus the um whatever it is is have i said it's schneider yeah it is a schneider um the super super, super angle on at uh at probably eight six point eight and uh, and certainly at five point six and it's it's noticeably brighter um but i i still still find i must i'm still struggling a little bit but i think i'm gonna have to actually get myself a proper dark cloth instead of uh, this blanket that i'm carrying around that's letting light in underneath um, mm-hmm. so uh, with some i don't know what, what what are you using jason well, uh, I started out using um, two T-shirts, one black T-shirt and one white T-shirt that I had them, you know, stuck inside each other. And then I would stick my head through the hole in reverse and then cover the back of the camera with the, you know, the open part of the shirt. And that worked really well for a long time. Then I finally broke down and got um, a larger dark cloth. It's, you won't, you end up wanting one bigger than you think you need because, if it's too small, then your head's too close to the to the glass, and you can't really compose as well as if you can pull your head back a little bit and really see the whole image. Especially with the larger formats like eight by ten and eleven by fourteen, you need a lot of room under there to be able to kind of see everything and see the corners and everything and all that. Yeah, that's, that's a good that's a good tip. That is because I do I do see them every now and again, and I'm thinking, yeah, I can There's see lot, how size we, matters there. We, I think the one I use for eight by ten and eleven by fourteen is a Harrison. Um, they make those, Harrison also makes those changing tints that you can get that kind of look like space age silver on the outside and then, or light tight on the inside. Yeah. Do you go for, um, lightness or never mind the quality, feel the weight approach? Well, you know, I'm just still experimenting. I mean, I've been mm. doing this a while and I'm still trying around the, the t-shirt was perfect for, for a four by five in the beginning because it was just. You know, it was nothing you could ball it up and throw it into any kind of bag you needed. Yeah. The um, I got one. 
I got my second one was from a company that um, makes the Beyond the Zone system. Yes. Tube, tubes. Yeah. And it kind of has a an elastic side and then an open mm-hmm. side with Velcro, so you can put it around the back part of your camera. So it really keeps the light out, which I really like. But then I would end up changing the movements by trying to pull it off the back of the camera yes. before I, I put the I, holder in. I have one of those, and I bought. I had it imported from the states from exactly that same one for the four five, and it. And I have a love-hate relationship with it. It's it's really light, but it it takes quite a bit of stretching over the back of my Toyo, and I I invariably end up shifting something when I like you say, you know. Mm-hmm. So what I've done is I just invert it. So I put my head through the small end, and then just use my hands to kind of clamp it up around the back mm-hmm. end, and that that's yeah. to work pretty well. If I haven't now, I mean I'm I think a dark cloth is a, I'm probably going to at least buy a third one at some point because I'm. I've actually got a really posh one, a Linhof. It's red on one side, so I look like Superman, <laughs> and black on the other side. And it's got weight. It's got weights in each corner, so it's a. And it, but it's really heavy, you know. It's, and it that's fine. But and and it's I I find that just a loose dark cloth, a traditional cloth with weighted corners, so it doesn't blow away in the wind easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that idea most versatile. But it's just a bit heavy, really. So I I think I want something. There are some others that work with drawstrings, aren't there, that you can pull around. And that, and I think I'm not sure whether there is a perfect solution to this, really. It's interesting to see what our, listeners, what our listeners think. If we can, so, folks, if you'll just share pictures of what dark cloth you're using in the, in the Facebook group, including you, Joseph. You yeah, share yours sure. as well. When we start talking about the wet plate stuff, I'll, sh- I'll talk about what I use for well, a shroud we- for my... After we formally introduce you, you mean? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're st- we're still away from that. <laughs> yeah, we haven't, finished, um, we haven't finished talking about what we've been up to yet. No, um, but uh, I, and and but it's, it's good that we just mentioned the the, the, the Facebook group there um, because as a result of me posting pictures of uh, of my lens not working and getting derision as uh, as as was to be expected and deserved um the the discussion widened out a little bit and uh and and it was uh, bill orford picked up on something about the fact that i've got a, a 152 millimeter ektar lens which is the lens that came with the meridian which is a really really nice lens and it's got it's on a kodak supermatic shutter and the lens board, that lens, that shutter—it just—it just looks absolutely amazing on my, on my camera. And it's actually that's that's the camera that uh, we use uh, on the LFPP um, icon, if if you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I've got a big problem with it, and and that's I just don't trust the shutter, especially at the at the lower speeds. And obviously, the lower speeds are usually the speeds where we do a lot of lot of work at. And uh, he he got in touch with me and said I might be able to do something with an oily rag with that. So uh, so that's where it is. It's it's with Bill at the moment, and I just want to thank Bill for taking taking this on, seeing if he can actually do anything with it. And uh, so fingers crossed that will come back and be a little bit more reliable than it uh, it currently is. Um, and then one one final thing that came out of the group that's all this is all linked in together, uh, and it was a post by Greg o- Greg Opst. Uh, who was on the show uh, a couple of episodes ago, and mm-hmm. he he was taught. It was a photograph of his father that was taken about two mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. and um, and it's a it's it's a it's a really sad but positive post at the same time um, because he was he was talking about 
uh, he's not going to have an opportunity to to improve upon that photograph um, he's glad he took it as it was and it's a great photograph as as it is but he won't be able to do that again um, because I, I don't know where we're going to be at the at the point of uh, the, the recording if he's if his father's still with him or not but he's, he's certainly not going to be with us for much longer if 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 not and uh, but he made the point about going out there and taking photographs of your loved ones while you can and uh, which sounds a little bit morbid but it's not it's a it's a positive message because i think we uh, take for granted people being here um, mm. and uh, that was and so from that um, i took my uh, new super angle on on my sign off um, to my dad's you know, and uh, he did a did a sitting for me, um, and he enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a good learning experience, um, and I've got uh, Greg to thank for giving me the uh, uh, the motivation for actually going out and doing that because I could have quite easily have just done something else. So yeah, uh, that's lovely. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, and I hope um, things work out, Greg, in whatever way. But I hope you're um, hope you're coping, and you know, lots of love to you and your family. Yeah, and uh, and just to take things back onto the uh, tragic comic uh, note that my life seems to be with uh, large, large formats, I then took the uh, the, the shots, the, the the negatives to the uh, Six Towns darkroom on a Tuesday night, and uh, loaded them into my newly improved um, combi plan tank because I found a. Uh, a better valve or rather I found a valve I should say that I can actually use to uh, evacuate the fluids out of instead of undoing a screw that would fall out and then ex expose part of the, my shots that are in the tank and so I was thinking yeah this, this is great now Everyth everything's all good and 15 minutes into a 20 minute development uh, <laughs> my valve fell off <laughs> and, and all the all the uh, the the developing fluid uh, came out of it, and so on and so on. So so my uh, you had a pre premature evacuation. <laughs> I did, I did. That was exactly what happened after twenty minutes. That was good going, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So uh, so yeah, I've not I've not looked at those photographs yet, but they um, I, I, it means I will be doing uh, another sitting with my dad, and I'm looking forward to doing that. So uh, so yeah, so. If, Another thing learnt, I just need to super glue part of my tank now because that's the thing when you're using old equipment, it eventually fails. Uh, so, you know, um, you're such a tight wad. Why don't you just go and buy some <laughs> a, a new bit of kit, you know, and support some of these many people out there, you know, the Mod 45 or the SP 445 tank or something? Come on, for goodness sake. I wouldn't even recommend the, um, the Beyond the Zone system tubes for 4x5 because you can do six sheets at a time you can have them all with different developers different development times it's incredibly versatile and if you want to just do a couple sheets you know you don't have to wait till you have enough to fill one of those tanks to do it and the amount of chemistry used is very minimal i think it's 60 milliliters mm. per sheet it's very very minimal joseph i'll i've made a note of those things and i'll do a link in the show notes to beyond the zone system and the tubes and the uh, yeah. and the dark cloths well i started using them because um I was shooting the Roly RPX 25 in 4x5, and mm -hmm. that, if you've ever held that, it's it's the thinnest film I've ever touched in my life. I mean, it just would not go. I used to use a Mod 5.4, mm -hmm. and it would not fit in that and stay in that in the little teeth for that. It was so thin, it would just yeah. That's the problem with that. If you depending on the, on the on the on the rigidity of the film, 
and how vigorous you are with your inversion. You know, you, you can dislodge the film out of the little fingers, can't you, if you're not careful. But I highly recommend that, Simon, because you get you scratch free negatives every time and it's very easy to hmm. fine tune your development to the uh, exposure that you made. You, you guys were talking about zone system last time. It's designed for that. So you can have, and you could do it all at once. So you can just leave some, you know, spinning longer than the rest. I've got to say you, you had me at 60 milliliters and, uh, and two at a time or a single sheet. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, that's incredibly uh, attractive because I'm, I'm using something that I've, I really need to do six at a time and use a minimum of a, of a liter of fluid. So, uh, um, and being the tight waters, as, as it's been pointed out. <laughs> well, it's good for tight waters. You get exercise while doing it because you're having to basically manually spin the spin the tubes in a water bath the entire time. So you'll be busy. Yeah. You'll feel yeah. like you've done something <laughs> at the end. Well, yeah. well, that's the thing about uh, development anyway. I mean, if you've got to go back to it for 50, well, 10 seconds out of every minute, you've always got to do something with the tank. So you may as well be doing – It's you know, you, there's not really much in life you can do with 50 seconds every minute, is there? So uh, you may as well be doing something all the time, I guess. <laughs> um <laughs> anyway that's uh so that that's 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 my week done and um so um what have what have you been up to uh joseph uh well it's been really quite hot here so i haven't been doing any wet plate stuff outside the collodion that i use boils at about 95 degrees and we've been in the low 90s so it's not I, i'm kind of a two-season wet plate, wet plate shooter as far as shooting outside i'll shoot in the spring and i'll shoot in the fall but not so much in the summer uh, so I've been doing a lot of indoor work. I've been um, shooting still life of shells. I'm one of my favorite photographers is a photographer named Andreas Feiniger, and he's done. He did a lot of work with um, shells, and he had this way of making shells look bigger than they were by putting a sky background behind it and kind of shooting up at it in a little sandbox and everything. So I've been playing around with that this week to to get the magnification. I needed to bring these shells to life. I, I, using my eight by 10 camera and reducing it to four by five and, you know, racking the bellows out to get, get it all into a frame that and shooting up at it makes it look bigger too. But um, that's, that's kind of what I've been doing this week. I, I like doing still life when I can't go outside. That's, you know, trying to come up with a reason to shoot uh, when the weather's not pleasant, either raining or something. It's nice to be able to do stuff, set up a little, you know, lighting set up inside and, and play around. It's also better than shooting portraits because they don't move. Yeah, <laughs> they can't talk back. They'll stay in the same position no matter how long you leave them there. It's a it's a nice alternative. It doesn't seem to be a a much pursued art form still life. And you know, I mentioned him not on every show, but quite a lot. John John Blakemore, UK very talented photographer and printer did a whole series of still lives on uh, on tulips. That's what he was most famous for. And, he, and I've, I've held one of his fiber prints of, uh, d- of, of decayed tulips. And he, and he just constructed um, Im- images, whole scenarios and, and tableaus with, with flowers and tulips. And, and they are quite something to behold. And it's, it's a real, it's a real art form in itself, but we can come on and talk about that. Should I, Simon, should I introduce Joseph formally? And then I think we so. can, we can, he's, he's tantalized, tantalizingly dangled references to wet plate and, and other things in, in front of us. So we can, uh, we can ask perhaps him to explain or explain himself 
uh, fully. But Joseph, um, Joseph Prunges, welcome, sir. You're very, well, very you. welcome. So, Joseph, I uh, I would have first come across your good self, as I think probably the majority of the listeners would have done, as uh, on the on the FPP uh, show. Certainly, you've been referred to over the years, and then in more recent times, you've made guest appearances on the uh, Matt and Joby show. I think of, uh, <laughs> uh, early earlier in the year. Yeah, uh, I've been on. sorry. No, that's fine. You carry on. How many times uh, have you now made an appearance on the FPP? Oh gosh, um, I've I've lost count. What what originally happened was that I was I started what, listening to their show probably around episode three, and I lived in North Carolina at the time, so I was pretty far from New Jersey, so there's no way no chance of visiting. And then I moved to upstate New York and then Connecticut, so I was quite close. So I offered um, to come down and shoot the cast on Tintype. And that's how I got to officially meet them and be on the show the first time. And then I've just kind of kept a relationship with them ever since and have um, gone to a bunch of their workshops and, and taught web plate there. And, you know, just, I keep, I keep getting invited back. So I must be doing something. Okay. You must be. Well, what it says here, you've got a, a lovely website, Joseph, with really good examples of your, of your work. And we'll be dipping in and out of that. That's josephbrungers.com. If uh, folks want to dive in there. So there's this, rather dignified photograph of you if you want to see what joseph looks like he's standing there next to what i think is an 1114 uh camera it says joseph um is a wilmington north carolina native which you just mentioned and you live there with your family in walnut cove that sounds idyllic i'd like to live in walnut cove yeah Uh, we have three stoplights (laughs) (laughs) are they vandalized and they're all on the same street street that's three stoplights that's it Fantastic. And Joseph received his photographic training from the International Center of Photography and the Center for Alternative Photography, both in New York City. He first learned film photography from his father, John Henry Brunges III. That's a fantastic name. Yeah, my mom well, got mad because my brother and I haven't had any sons because she wanted there to be a John Henry Brunges V because my brother is John Henry Brunges IV. Oh, right. Has he got kids then? No. Uh, no oh. He doesn't have any kids. Uh. So I have a daughter, and she wasn't going to be John Henry Brunges, I think. So, um, <laughs> well, in this day and age, anything's possible, you know. With all that's true. Gender fluidity and whatnot. Anyway, he, uh, let's stray away from that controversial subject. <laughs> he currently teaches wet plate collodion at Sawtooth School of Visual Arts in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. There you go. It, it goes on some other stuff about violins, but we don't need to talk about that. And um, that was loud. Is that um, is that you, Simon, or is that it, Joseph? It, it was me, and it was my father ringing as as he always does in the po- in, when I'm recording a podcast in the afternoon. But uh, there you go; it's silent now. Anyway, Joseph. So there's a potted history of uh, a little bit about your background. But you know, I know you as um, someone who uses big cameras, does uses uses film, yeah, but you likes the old processes. So why don't you t- do that thing that we all love to hear about? Tell us a little bit more, enlarge upon that about me introduction and a little bit about you, and then we can dive into old processes and you can sure you can tell us what you know. Sure. I got first got interested in photography because my father taught high school photography for 30 years. And it was, you know, wet, dark room, black and white. And when I was in middle school, my parents gave me a little point and shoot 35 millimeter camera and my dad would develop the film for me, but I would get to go in the dark room and make prints. And I thought that was just 
you know, magical to see stuff come up in a tray and being able to portray my friends and, and learning all these darkroom techniques from him. And then I think at some point I, I broke my camera. Um, I think I dropped it down a flight of stairs by accident. Um, and that's kind of hard to explain to your parents. Uh, well, I need a new camera because I dropped that one. And they go, okay. So I, I ended up, I think the next Christmas I got a new camera, dropped that one too. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to try this technique with my <laughs> wife. <laughs> um, so then they said, well, you don't need to change taking pictures for a while. So I kind of, you know, straight away from it, I'm a musician. So I got really got into classical violin. So I kind of got dedicated to that. And then in the early 2000s, I, I was really getting interested in these digital cameras, you know, these really high high quality 1.3 megapixel digital cameras that I was hearing about. And so I bought one and started taking pictures again. And then my daughter was born in 2006. And I thought, said, okay, I'm going to use this as an excuse to buy a nice DSLR. So I bought a Canon, you know, Rebel or something and, and shot with that for a while. And then I went, I think I need a better camera than that. So I bought, uh, you know, a higher end Canon digital and I've stuck with Canon digital even today. And at some point I just kind of got bored with it. I, I didn't like the way that digital portrayed everything exactly the way it was. I wanted something that was, you know, give give me some sort of otherworldly type looks. And I think I bought a Holga shot a couple rolls in Holga. And when I got the film back, it reminded me of what I had missed shooting film. So I, I from there, I, you know, bought a, a nice Canon EOS 35 millimeter film camera. And then, um, then I purchased, I guess the first revelation about larger sizes of film was I got a Pentax 645N for nothing. This was right before Pentax came out with that digital version of that. And so all the lenses were dirt cheap and I managed to get a whole kit for this camera for, for very little money and start shooting with that and just was blown away with the image quality of the larger negative. And this is a 645 negative. And then I just slowly incrementally started getting bigger I got a, um, a, a Chamonix 4x5 in 2011, started shooting with that, and just loved it. And I heard an interview of, by Rob Kendrick, who's a, a National Geographic photographer who shoots tintypes. And he did a project for National Geographic on cowboys and I was really amazed when I saw the images that the uniform of the cowboy really hasn't changed in the past hundred years. I mean, when you see these pictures, especially the way he's distressed them and, and processed them, you have no idea when these pictures were taken. And he talked about how much these images were an object as much as they were a photograph because you can hold them and they're metal and they're real. And, and I just got really gravitated towards that. At the same time that I heard this interview about the tintype portraits, I, had a photograph of my daughter stolen on the internet and being used all over the world for different things. It was a postcard in Turkey, sorry, postcard in Turkey. It was a motivational poster in Spain. It was being used for piano lessons and um, Asian countries like Thailand and China and things, places where there's no copyright laws where I could go after them. Um, it was even being used domestically as avatars on Facebook and Twitter, which those I was able to get removed, but people didn't seem to be seem to understand why I was I was upset about it or concerned. And that just really made me push towards making something that was a, um, 
that was hard to reproduce. Like when you see scans of tintypes on the internet, those are really just kind of ghosts of the real thing. When you hold a tintype and you're able to angle it in different directions and see the different coatings of the chemicals on it and the way they expect exposure. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's experience you can't get on the internet. And so that's one of the reasons that really drew me in. Um, now I'm teaching, uh, I, I learned how to do the process studying with Joni Sternbach and Lisa Elmale at the Center for Alternative Photography, which I think now is called the Penumbra Foundation in New York City. Um, I, I was afraid that, well, my wife said I couldn't learn the process until we had a house where I could store the chemicals properly, <laughs> meaning a garage, you know, something external from the house. So I went and learned the process. Finally. I was afraid because I'd, I'd heard some of the chemicals were kind of crazy and I think cyanide was involved. You know, I was, I was, I was worried about all that, but um, it turns out that they're actually a lot more workable than, than you would think. And they're not so crazy as long as you respect them. The collodion has ether in it, which is explosive and can knock you out. The silver nitrate can blind you. It looks like a clear liquid, but when it touches organic material, it turns brown. So when I so do the process, put, I just basically it look like in, a... Sorry, Joseph, you store it all in lemonade bottles and tell the kids, don't drink this. Is that right? Right. <laughs> well, luckily, my daughter's old enough to where she, she's been pretty good about staring clear of myself. She's at that age where she doesn't want anything to do with photography because I think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. she doesn't she doesn't want me to even take her picture unless she dresses up or something. How old is she, Joseph? Uh she's thirteen. Oh, she'll get past it. My daughter now thinks she thinks I'm kind of cool. She doesn't listen to this podcast, so she'd deny it, but she does really, being an old <laughs> film guy, you know. Joseph, do you want to just take a, a step back and define some of these terms? Because I'm very conscious that we haven't oh, sure. this is an area we haven't covered before. So you mentioned tin type, you've mentioned collodion. Now, there's other terms like wet plate photography, dry plates. Uh, could you just sort of sum that up for us yeah, and sure. define some of those terms and, and perhaps, if you're able to, place them in some kind of historical context? Sure. The, um, the wet plate process was invented in 1851. The, the, the general term for, for a number of processes all fall under the umbrella of wet plate. Hmm. So wet plate collodion includes tintypes. It includes ambrotypes. I'll describe what these all are in a second. And uh, glass plate, uh, wet plate negatives. Yeah, those are kind of the three. There's a fourth one which is um, called opalotypes, which is a, a, on a white surface. But that will, that's kind of more obscure. So a tintype is an image on a piece of metal, blackened metal, and ambrotype is an image on glass. And those two both require a black background in order to be positive. So if if you think of, since I'm finally talking to film people about this, so this makes perfect sense. If you've had a really thin negative and you've held it in front of a black background and, and you've seen a positive instead of a negative, that's yes. basically what a tintype is. Yeah. What they were trying to do was they were trying to shorten exposure time so they could um, get faster exposures because the wet plate process is incredibly slow. When you think of terms of ISO, most um, wet plate tintypes, the ISO is anywhere between one and a half. It's just very, very slow, and it requires lots of UV light. It's a very blue-sensitive process. The whole process is called wet plate because the plate is required to be wet from beginning to end. It was discovered, I mean, it was invented because what they were trying to do was find a happy medium between the two competitive processes just before wet plate, the, and those were calotypes and daguerreotypes, 
with cow types, you had a reproducible medium, which was a paper negative, which was, that was then contact printed with another paper negative to get a positive. And the only problem with calotypes was that the paper they used was incredibly fibrous so that when you, by the time you've done all that contact printing, you got a really low resolution image because of all the mm. stuff shining through the paper, yeah. but, you, but it was reproducible. And then on the other end, you had daguerreotypes, which is on a piece of polished silver. It was a one of a kind. It was incredibly detailed, but you couldn't make copies of it. So you were stuck with one of a kind images. It's a daguerreotype, what would be often referred to as cabinet print. So they the is that the same sort of same sort of term? Are you familiar with that term? I think it meant just I'm not finally presented in, you know, as an object in itself, in often in like a little wooden frame. Oh, yes. Yeah, they would do that. They would they would they were always in a little a little box that sometimes yeah. had glass and I might be made, I might I might have just invented that or, or my mind is playing tricks but I think cabinet prints is often what they refer to. So what they were what they were trying to figure out was how can we make a light sensitive emulsion stick to glass. Hmm. And Frederick Scott Archer in 1851 figured out that he could use collodion and collodion is a mixture of a number of things it's got ether in it. Um, it's got collodion and, and stuff called gun cotton but it all and what you do with the collodion is you also salt the collodion with uh, some bromides and iodides that when mixed with silver nitrate will make the silver nitrate become light sensitive. Yeah. And so the collodion is poured onto a plate. Um, these metal plates, what they, they used to use a piece of iron that was japanned. And by japanning, I mean, they would take it and cover it with black asphalt and Everclear. There's, there's like 190 proof grain alcohol in every part of this process too. It's, so, you know, light, no, no cigarette smoking around any of this, um, which I've had people try to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and you would bake that iron plate in an oven until you got a very shut, you know, light, thin, black, shiny surface. Most people now shooting tintypes are shooting what you would call alumatypes where you're taking a piece of trophy aluminum, you know, that little thin piece of aluminum you see on the front of your, participation trophy yeah. um and it comes in large sheets that you can then cut down into whatever size you want and it's covered in a plastic sheet which is nice because you can pull it off and it's perfectly clean yeah and ready to go um and you pour the, the way the process works is you would pour collodion onto the plate it acts kind of like a liquid plastic it starts to dry while it's, while it's not well it's still wet but not too not too dry. And are you, you if it, some, for someone wanting to get into this, are you making this up yourself or is there somebody supplying a ready mixed collodion? Well, that's the wonderful thing about this right now. This is the best time to get into this process because there are more people doing it now yeah. than there were when it was the only form of photography. It's, um, and there are people teaching workshops. I mean, I usually recommend people that they take a workshop yeah. because then you get to try the whole process out on, on someone else's equipment because I think the real penalty in doing it is the initial cost of buying all the gear. It's, I mean, you have to have so many different things and buy, you know, silver nitrate is not cheap. I have a 16 by 20 silver nitrate tank and it cost me about $750 just for the silver nitrate for it. It's five liters. That's, that's a lot. So I usually recommend people take a workshop and learn and on the smallest plates that they can make. Usually four by five is kind of a standard starting point because it's, it's just big enough to where you can. Just just for my show notes at the end, I, I can recommend somewhere in the UK, in fact, Good. four miles from where I'm sitting, a company called Wet Plate Supplies, and I'll, I've mentioned them before, but they, Kevin, who runs it, sells all the equipment you need and also 
if you ring him up, he'll do one-on-one workshops with you. What about in the States, Joseph? Because we have, um, I think, our our biggest listenership is in the States. Well, it's getting competitive now. There are a lot of choices. Um, My tanks are from a company called Lund Photographics. Um, My... Uh, a lot of my chemicals I get from Bostic and Sullivan out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, but there, there's a lot of options now. There's a company called modern collodion that sells, but, uh, sells stuff. Um, I, I'd be afraid to, to leave someone out by listing them all, but maybe in the show notes, I can give you a list of, um, I, from the class that I teach, I have kind of a, a list of places to get stuff, but the, the trophy, the aluminum we buy, we call, we call a trophy company and and buy it directly from a trophy company mm-hmm. so you don't you don't even have to buy them from specific places selling web plate gear you can go directly to the source and get it a little cheaper glass can be procured at any you know glass um glass company they'll cut it a lot of times you pay um you pay for the the object itself like the glass or the aluminum and then you pay for how many cuts they have to make yeah so you can kind of let if you have a a decent you know, part paper cutter at home, you can, that you, that you want to dedicate to it, you can use it to chop up your aluminum plates with and save money on all the cuts. Okay. The, um, I'm trying to think if there's any, any other stuff that, I, you know, the second you mark something as photographic, it, the price goes up. <laughs> and so a lot of things kind of get coerced into the process where you don't have to, like I use, for a headrest, because when I shoot portraits indoors, especially the exposure times can be rather rather long. And I use a heavy symbol Yamaha symbol stand for a drum set as a headrest. And it's, you know, not that expensive. And if you were trying going to try to buy something period, you know, a period headrest, it would cost substantially more. And what I've got works great. So sure. I'm not somebody who goes out and does a lot of uh, civil war reenactment things because my setup, my my rig is totally modern. I, I turned the back of my truck into a dark room. And what I did was I went to Walmart and bought a $20 Lightning McQueen children's tent, which is four by five feet. <laughs> uh, the Lightning, Lightning McQueen is a little bit ironic because the process is so slow. But I bought it because it was red. And it's a, because this is an orthochromatic process, I thought, well, any light that comes in is at least going to shine through that red and might, you know, won't fog the plates. And then I went to uh, Freestyle Photographic. They sell a really light, light, tight, thin um, uh, material that you can, I think they sell it by the yard or something, but it's white on one side and black on the other. And I bought enough of that to make a shroud that would cover both the tent and myself. And then I put some tennis balls or something, something like that in the, to make, to weight it down. And then I use that as a shroud. So it's a really, um, modern version of of an old hmm. setup. I mean, they like, used to use horse-drawn carts and things. Yeah, like, like the guys you see in the in the old illustrations on the on the Civil War battlefields, and you know, with a horse-drawn darkroom and doing strange things with ether and noxious chemicals. You you so you've got the you've got the um, collodion. Uh, and you've got your plate. So describe the process for us. You know, if you were out in the field, sort of step by step, what you were going to do. If you, you know, you you're out with your mobile darkroom. How how are you? What are you physically doing to that plate? And then how are you making the image? 
So the first thing I would do is I would pour collodion on the plate. You pour it in the center of the plate in like a little puddle, and then you roll it around to the corners, and you pour it back off into the bottle that yeah. you pour it from. Some people have an extra bottle, but I usually pour it straight back in. Yeah. Then you let it start to set. As soon as you feel like it's drying a little bit but not too much, you sit it in the silver nitrate bath, which is a light, tight tank, for about three minutes. And, and that's where you've got all this $700 of silver nitrate. Well, I, that tank I don't take out in the field. Okay. <laughs> that, that one, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. There, there's ways to make tintypes without using a camera, so I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Um, so I have, I have two tanks. I have an 8 by 10 tank and then now an 11 by 14 inch tank that I take out. And you put it in there for three minutes or so for it to become light sensitive. And then in the dark under red light, you can take it out, put it in the back of a uh, plate holder, which is similar to a film holder, except instead of having, you know, two sided, it's one side that's kind of you load from the back and shoot from the front. So it has a slide in the back with a pressure plate that holds the plate against either a shelf or some metal pins in the corners. And then you put it in the back of the camera like you would any film holder and make your exposure. Then you take it back, take it back out, and immediately go and develop it. As long as it's wet, it's still light sensitive. As soon as it starts to dry out, it loses that light sensitivity. So you're stuck having to process the plate within, say, five to eight minutes of making the exposure. So that really limits you know, how far your darkroom can be away, how far your subject can be from the road if you're driving, or a lot of people make their own dark boxes and hike them out into, into the wilderness and do this stuff. But it's, uh, so it's a very limiting process. And then the fact that it's very slow under bright sunlight in the middle of the day, you can probably get about a half a second to a one second exposure with brand new chemicals. <laughs> that's the other thing that's kind of frustrating for people is that the chemicals all age at different speeds. So using a light meter is kind of, kind of a waste of time. You, you just have to kind of get to know your chemicals and get an idea for exposure and then base your future exposures upon the ones you've taken. And the collodion, as it, when you first make collodion, it starts out kind of a yellowish color and it's very fast, but low contrast. And then as it ages, it starts to turn red and it becomes slower, but the contrast is nicer. And the silver nitrate bath, you know, every time you're putting a plate in there, you're pulling silver out. So it has to be, you have to perform maintenance. You have to add silver back to it. You have to sun it or boil it to try to get some of the excess um, ether and some other stuff out of it so it doesn't get contaminated and then it gets filtered uh, before and after use basically every time so I, I, I basically have it double filtered before I use it each time man this doesn't sound like an easy process <laughs> <laughs> well that's why I said taking a workshop is a great idea because you don't have yeah. to do any of that you show up you pour the plates you go home you know and okay well you think that's done I, after you <laughs> so you've you've made your exposure you go in and you develop it the the developer you hardly need any developer it's really you're just covering the top of the plate with it and what you do is you pour it on like a wave you can't splash it in the center of the plate because it will push the silver that's sitting mm. on top out of the way so you have to pour it on very gently from the side and then roll it around a lot of times people use a helper tray which is a little um acrylic tray that you that's a little bit bigger than the plate that has a lip on it so that when you pour the developer on it keeps it on the plate there, there are many ways to develop plates, but that's probably the most popular these days. And you roll it around, and the image will come up as a negative, and you stop the development by pouring water on it. And then after it's completely uh, 
the developer is completely washed off, it's no longer light sensitive. You can actually pull it out in the light and look at it. And what it looks like is kind of a blue negative. And then the fun part for, for demonstration purposes is that you in the light, you can put it in the fixer bath and actually watch it flip from negative to positive. Wow. And that, okay. and everyone always oozes and ahs over that. Because <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's like magic, you know, and it, and it never gets boring for me. I, I always have to watch. I always find that part fascinating. Can you tell, I suppose you can, from the, the tonal range of the negative and the density, if it's going to come out stonkingly good or appallingly bad? Stonkingly, that's a new term I haven't heard. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, it's all done by inspection. So that's the kind of nice thing about it is if you have, uh, you guys have talk, been talking about the zone system and pushing and pulling and things. If If you have a really high contrast scene, I can overexpose the negative a little bit and then pull the development. Okay. So, so, so you can push and pull to try to change the contrast and things. It's a very narrow range for a plate. It's not like a traditional film where you have a lot of stops. It's very, it's mm-hmm. pretty narrow. Is but, it more like a, a transparency film? Like, yeah, it's at least that, or or even worse. Right. I mean, okay. it just it depends. Again, the the age of the chemicals really affect it. So, yeah. if you have a, if you have a real you know a three month old collodion, then you're um, you're going to have really high contrast no matter what. And, or you have to expose for a long time to try to pull it back into a reasonable contrast. But the, the, the point of when you, when you're developing is what you, the, the highlights pop up first, then followed by the midtones and it lasts the shadow. So you're trying to get some shadow detail without blowing the highlights. And that's a very tricky business because let's say you're outside if it's 60 degrees outside, if it's 90 degrees outside, that that developer is going to work at a different speed. Sometimes you have to go really fast and get and stop it to keep the developer from over developing. By the time you've reached down to pick up your stop path, it could be too late. So there's a real fine line. You're trying to get as bright a plate as possible without blowing highlights because a tintype's main flaw is that it's on a black background. So you can't get absolute white. Uh, out of a tintype, they always are a little bit murky. They require a lot of light to look at them and view them properly. So we're always kind of pushing the boundaries of that edge of blowing a highlight, but not. And so sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not. Is that the same when you're using glass? Because if you're using glass, presumably you're not. Are you working on a blackened surface still with glass or... Oh well, if you if for final presentation, yes. When you're processing everything, you would just be you know, over whatever the color of your tray is. I use a black tray for for some of that so I can at least kind of see it come up in the right. So on the glass, it, for viewing, you'd put the final image against something black. That's what yes. you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You can make negatives too and then contact print those or even put them in an enlarger and print them, but they take the exposure times are about three times as long. So using so, glass, I've, I've, going back to your introduction, which I've foolishly now it seemed a while ago because I've forgotten it, <laughs> you were talking about either using um, uh, blackened metal, mm-hmm. aluminium sheets, or glass. Uh, but it, on glass, is it, the, is it the same process you put in that collodion on, or are we talking It is. It just kind of adds that? a step. What you have to do is, one, you have to clean both sides of the glass. Yeah. You know, and then you have to either file the edges of the glass or use or use albumin, which is egg whites and water yep. around the edges. Because what happens, the glass is so slippery that the, the collodion, I mean, the emulsion can actually just push right off. 
Oh, so you, you have, have to make like a little a little bund area or a little ridge yes. or something. Okay. So I take you know sandpaper or a file or something and really grind the edges. Oh. So it's pretty rough to hold it on there. I'm a lot of people will use a little albumin up and getting away with not not doing it. I don't do a lot on glass, but the ones that I have, I just I just grind the edges a little bit. It's kind of a neat mm. look too when you see mm. it. Um, but I, I just make the edges very rough, and I haven't had any problems. What I'm what I'm curious about is because when you mentioned earlier that the the older methods were producing one of a kinds, mm-hmm. and 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 the collodion methods, whether it be tin type or amber type, um, I those should, are also one of a kinds. <laughs> ah, no, that, that was the thing. I was, yeah. I was I was scratching my head. I was thinking, how how do you get it off this piece of metal? Uh, well, they to, started to make they it. started by making glass plate negatives, and then the tin type. You know, the idea of making something with a black background kind of came a little bit later. But th- their first idea was to be able to just make uh, a negative on glass that they could contact print with paper. In fact, it was kind of a miracle that the albumin printing process kind of formed at the exact same time because those really go hand in hand. And that's like if you see these um, carte de visites, you know, these little cards that have old pictures on them, those, those are all albumin prints made from glass plate negatives, wet plate negatives. And the uh, the tintype process and ambertype, well, mainly the tintype process, was became very popular in the United States because it was during the Civil War, where the photographers would come in, you know, between battles and try to make some money off the soldiers so they'd have a picture to send home before they got blown away, and they needed something that was sellable, you know, that right then and there. So, so the tintype was a way to get an instant one-of-a-kind positive that they could immediately turn around and sell. And so they weren't care they didn't care about, you know, mass reproducing pictures of that for that. So that's why we kind of tintypes became very popular in the United States for that reason. So, so the, the, the tintype shots that are up on your website, they they are um, basically scanned, scanned images of, of, uh, yes. of, yeah. Now what you'll see on my website is kind of the other, my other side of wet plate work is that I also do something called tintype printing. And what, what you do there is you, you're basically making a plate in the same way you would make it to put it in the back of a camera. But instead of putting it in the back of a camera, I would put it underneath an enlarger and project an image onto it. And that saves you all that work of having to drag, you know, all your wet plate gear out in the field. You could take a picture on a positive slide film or you even digital and then print a, uh, on you know transparency paper and then project that image down onto a tintype later. So if you'll see on my website, I have a whole series of sailing, which would have been completely impossible uh, using an actual camera. Because first of all, I'm on a boat that's bobbing, I'm bobbing, the ocean is bobbing, and then the boats are all bobbing. There's no way I would have been able to capture an exposure fast enough to make that amount to anything. They, really, they are really, really cool. Um, just the, just the, the the overall look about them, and uh, it, I mean, I've I've seen images that have been digitally digitally manipulated to have this kind of look, um, but there's and but they usually go with like lots of scratches and stuff like that to make the things look really old and and, and so on. Whereas these are obviously much cleaner because you've you know, there's there's care has been been taken as 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 to how these are being made, but the the look about them, even though you know that. You know, it's it's impossible for that that photograph to have been taken in that particular way. There's still a really compelling and beautiful look about the whole 
the whole printing process, if you like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it takes things out of time because you're not expecting to see something modern in that kind of, you know, format. And the, I, it was interesting you saying about the, <clears throat> the emulations, the digital emulations of wet play is always about distressing. Yeah. It's always about scratching it or, you know, putting all kinds of weird marks on it. And I tend to pour really clean plates. I think it's more difficult to do that. And, um, and I, I kind of just like having, I mean, that's the way they would have shot it back then. They were, they weren't trying to distress anything. They were hiding as much of the corners as possible by putting these little paper mounts on them and things. So that it wasn't the, the end thing to do is to make it kind of antique, antique it. But um, the process itself is so, I call it caveman photography. I mean, it's, it's so, there's so many ways to screw things up that there's no reason for me to, to go out of my way to try to distress them anymore. A lot of times you get just random things happen no matter what. Well, you can you can see how you've uh, well, I, I understand it now. There's like a, a border around uh, the, mm -hmm. the shots I'm looking at, and that will be where you've you've scratched or not scratched. You've uh, um, you got that abrasive edge on the on on the edges. I'm guessing to to. Well, it depends. You'll be able to tell which ones were shot in camera and which ones weren't because there will be a border. Like for example, the volunteer fireman. That, that was kind of my first project. It's it's still ongoing. I just haven't added to it on my website that that theirs are all in camera because they have a a black border around them the 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 holders i use which are chamonix holders they hold the plate in place by using a shelf so there's a, there's always going to be a little black um border around the tintypes that use those holders because the, that part of the plate is not exposed so you'll have a little black border around the edges which is kind of quaint uh, i think it looks classy um, my 11 by 14 holder has pins. So you'll, instead of it'll expose the entire plate, but you'll see diagonal pin uh, lines across each corner for where it was sitting on metal pins instead of a shelf. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's funny. You, you see on Instagram uh, and lots of uh, other digital manipulation where they, they, people add these really messy um, borders in, into their photographs and I and I look at them and it, it, it drives me up the wall frankly <laughs> because you know you just right. just you just know that that's just got nothing to do with 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 what's happened uh, with with how the photographs taken yeah um, but you but you can see here this is these are the photographs that are designed to look and and they have that border in there not because they want to have that bordering in particular um, and like i say i think that you know if when these were framed they would almost certainly cover those 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 bits up wouldn't they uh, so you just have to yes something ni nice and clean in in the in the center of it right so. and you would even see they would even use i think one of the reasons they were called tin types even though they were mostly made on a piece of iron so they would use tin snips to clip the corners to get them to fit in those little paper sleeves and things so that's um a lot of if you pull out old tintypes, I've got a number of them here. If you pull them out of their little paper backing, everything you can see where they clipped the corners to make them fit. Yeah, the the shots I was I was talking about earlier when I was I was looking at referring to a border. Um, it's actually in your in the the sailing uh, mm -hmm. section, and it's a uh, it's in on the on your website. Assuming we've got it opened up in the same kind of way. Sure. It's in the, the bottom left, and it's um, like some kind of uh, decking area with uh, some old rocking chairs. 
Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. And I'm just looking at the, I mean, it's a different kind of border. Um, but what I'm saying, oh, okay. It, In that top right corner, yeah. what you what you actually see is when you pour the collodion off, you, you pour it off on one of the corners and the collodion builds up there. So it will change the exposure slightly. Right. Uh, and, and when you fix it, when you use the fixer, you'll actually see that that's the last part to completely fix out. So I think that upper right corner you're looking at yeah. is from... It's the corner that I poured off, and so the exposure is a little different there. Yeah, yeah. It's just one I, of the uh, serendipitous things no, about it, the process. It, exactly, and on the and on the left hand side of that shot, you, there's there's like a um, a, a darkened uh, mm -hmm. fluid edge. I think is the best best way to describe it. You're going to point out all my mistakes, aren't you? That's just well. poor development. <laughs> 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 it, it, since everything's done by hand, it's just you know um, what happened was the you, you poured the, I probably poured the developer on from the collodion's poor corner. And when I was rolling around, I didn't get it into the far corner, the bottom left corner enough at the beginning. The development is really, you know, 15 to 20 seconds. So if you don't get it covered immediately, you're going to get development errors or at least inconsistency in the development. So that I look at that bottom left corner and just say, oh, I didn't get the developer over to that corner soon enough. See, yeah, I, I, yeah, and I have a, I have a completely different take on it uh, because I think that I think the photograph looks better um, for it. But that's that's this is this is one of those things, isn't it? Where if you're the photographer, you 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 look at a photograph and you find fault in your in your image, whereas a, a layperson comes comes along and and sees the beauty uh, in the in mm -hmm. the image as a whole. And that that left hand edge, where as you say, you, you've you know, made an error for for me it's part of what makes that photograph really appealing oh yeah i'm i'm pretending to be upset about it it's just <laughs> it, it's it's really a miracle it works at all most of the time so you know it's there, there are lots of there are lots of ways to screw up but the development errors are developing is probably where you see the most errors um if you see like really dark spots or look what look like little black islands then that's where the, the when you pour the developer on, if you don't pour it on as a wave or if you let the plate dry out too much, it will start to dig into the silver and create little channels instead of actually covering the whole plate. And so you'll have areas of the emulsion that actually never touch the developer because it it's set up like a little island instead of covering, floating you know gently over the plate. So you'll see like in the bottom right of that sailing series, there's a a, a, a black circle over this, uh, in the right part of a picture of a boat kind of sailing away from me. Uh, that I can has like see a little, that. There's like a little splatter mark where I tried to get developer, but I saw that it wasn't covering there and I tried to splatter it. But that was the early days. <laughs> I've gotten a little better about it since then. And that one was actually shot on film. I mean, I started out doing this on, you know, I shot Provia, um, Fuji Provia in medium format for the sailing stuff. And then I eventually switched over to digital because I just found it was a little bit easier to, to make plates from it because you don't have the color bias. If I make a black and white positive on transparency, you don't you can have clouds in the sky. You can you, you can control the tones a lot better than if you're working from a, a, a color positive. Uh, my favorite thing to do actually is to shoot uh, the Roly RPX 25 and send it to a company called DR5, which I think is now in Iowa. And what they do is they convert your black and white film into a black and white positive. And the dynamic range uh, of those positives are amazing. 
I mean, just incredible dynamic range. And that gives me the ability to really pick and choose what part of that range I want to make a plate from. And that's, that's probably my favorite way to do it. But, but the digital positives work out pretty well. I mean, some, something you mentioned earlier and uh, yeah, about the price of the chemical, the, yeah, the main chemical in there or the most <laughs> expensive chemical in there, uh, the silver nitrate. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, a four, a four by five, I mean, obviously you're not, you're, you're not going to use huge amounts of that chemical, but you're, no, you're buying a lot of it in to make it um, well, economically uh, I, viable. I didn't mean to scare you about that. That the, the tank, you can get a small tank for four by fives and you might even, you won't even use a liter of chemicals. So, I mean, I was, I bought the tank because I was hoping to print in my dark room, 16 by 20 plates. And so I needed a tank that could hold you know, that plate and then a little extra. And then, so that ended up being five liters of silver nitrate, which was expensive. But I mean, I, the, the tank that I use most of the time, which is an eight by 10 inch tank, hardly, I mean, it's such a fraction of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that expensive. And the fact that you can shoot a hundred plates with a brand new silver bath before you even notice any maintenance that's required. So you can get a lot out of it. I'm I'm saying the initial expense is there, but the maintain maintaining that bath is not nearly. You know, I don't have to keep shelving out money for that because you just what you do is you use a hydrometer to check out the specific gravity of the of the solution, and then as you start pulling silver out of it, that number changes, and then you have to sun it or dehydrate the water in it or something to get that pH back. Not pH, but the specific gravity back up to where it needs to be. And so it's it just requires maintenance, and the maintenance is not that expensive. But the the initial shock factor can can scare some people away because you have to buy the tanks. Yeah, the, all the equipment is kind of specific, you know, for only for this process. You have to buy the tanks, you have to buy the holders, you have to buy the plate holder, you have to buy the you know the plates themselves. You have to go out and get a camera, and you have to buy a lens that's fast enough to shoot this stuff. I mean, it's the initial shock is is there. So, so the actual silver that, that's used, it's 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 more of a it's it's part of the process. It's not actually necessarily left behind on the on the tin type as such. You're you're actually recovering most of what you use. Is that is that correct? No, it 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 pulls it all out of the bath and puts it on the plate. So the silver is left on the plate, and you have to just replenish. You know, like some developers are replenishable. You just have to replenish the silver bath with silver every once in a while. And what I do is I make a solution of it's, it's a or eight to 10% solution of silver nitrate. And what I do is I make a little bottle with, you can buy the silver nitrate crystals by themselves and then mix them with water, however you want. And I, would, I make like a 30% solution that in a small bottle and I just add it back until it gets back up to the, the amount you need and the specific gravity you need. What I mean, happens yeah. is that Sorry, Kyle. it'll, it'll dehydrate through time. Like I keep my dark room, my dark room is in my basement, so I keep it fairly dry just so it doesn't, you know, damage my negatives or anything. And that dehydrates. If I have it still in my tank all the time, it'll start to dehydrate. And what will happen is it'll get, the level will get so low that it doesn't cover the plate anymore. So you have to do something at some point to bring it back up so that the solution in the tank is high enough to be able to to cover the plates. I kind of got surprised by it. I remember I, I parked on the side of a road and my truck wasn't level. And I didn't realize I didn't have enough chemicals in it. So the, the whole corner of one of my plates was blackened because the silver nitrate didn't even touch it. 
So that that's how you, that's one of those fun things about you, you learn in a controlled environment indoors, you know, shooting little plates. And I made the mistake of immediately going out and trying to shoot eight by 10 plates outside on a hot, sunny day. And it was just a total nightmare. I mean, I had mosquitoes landing in my collodion. I had the wind blowing, blowing things all over the place. It was just, it's a whole nother, you know, environment trying to shoot outdoors as opposed to inside. Joseph, your um, portraits of the volunteer firemen uh, mm-hmm. are very reminiscent that there's a there's somebody in the UK been working on a project, and some folks out there will know who I mean and probably tell me who it is, working on a project using uh, wet, uh, wet plate photography, shooting uh, portraits of volunteer lifeboat men around the country. So we have the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, RNLI, and they have lifeboat stations all around the UK. And he's been going around for, I don't know if it's still an ongoing project, but it was certainly consuming a lot of his time and making pictures of these lifeboat uh, crews. And this is very reminiscent of that. I don't know if you're aware of this uh, guy in the UK doing that uh, project or whether you just sort of evolved together doing a very similar thing. No, I, I didn't know about him. But the reason I, I chose the fireman was I was look, looking for, I was really, uh, I, I started looking at the pictures of August Sander. You know, he shot, he was called People of the 20th Century or something. Mm. He has all these portraits of people who were specific yep. to their job. You know, like yes. he would shoot bankers yeah. and shoot. That's right. And so Go I was ahead. looking for something like that I could shoot on wet plate that was, you know, a group of individuals that were kind of, under photographed, you know, just kind of under the radar and not really shot very much. Mm. And volunteer firemen, for the most part, they're very shy that, you know, that they'd actually, I had to work very hard to get, you know, them get the permission to shoot some of these people. Because in fact, like uh, one of the pictures, the, the, I guess the two last ones in the, in the series were these really young guys that, that the older guys are like, well, you can photograph them. And then when we, when we see they have a positive experience with you, we'll think about it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I, the volunteer fireman just made a lot of sense to me. And I had a lot of, this was back when I started it when I was living in Connecticut and there were just, you know, every little town had their own volunteered fire department. And some of them even had antique equipment and things. I thought this would be perfect for this. And for the most part, uh, I've gotten a really good response from it. When I moved back to North Carolina, I'm getting a little more grief about it. I mean, people were less interested. They, they want to know why I'm doing it. Am I making mm. money off of it? Yeah. You know, all this stuff. And my, my end goal is to, like most of the projects, is to kind of make a book. Either I'm self-publishing or getting someone to publish it. So I'm not trying to make a you know a lot of money off of it. I just, I, I just, I love the process. I wanted to practice the process. I love shooting portraits. And I thought they would be an interesting subject that would make other people want to see the images as well. If those could, could you not aim to to encourage more of these folks to take part? Could you not dangle the idea of um, you know a small exhibition in in a coffee shop or something, and and, and try and raise money for the volunteer firemen? Or oh, or that's maybe, not a bad idea. I've or, actually or maybe some proceeds from a book sale. You know, I've had these images in two shows already uh, that locally, and um, and I got a lot of good feedback from that. Mm. And people, and that's kind of drew more interest into me shooting more of more of them. The yeah. um, what's interesting is the the fire trucks look like they're black, but they're actually red. you know red and yellow <laughs> trucks. Yeah, 
and because that process doesn't see red and like warm colors look dark and cool colors look white. So it's really funny to see these like almost black fire trucks everywhere I was, when they're I was really, I, I was really interested to, uh, I read a post just before we came on air from uh, Jason Lane and Jason is a guest we're going to have on fairly shortly uh, sure. who makes the photographic of dry plates. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was test. I think he was just sharing some curves, some, um, density curves for some i don't know whether it's for his latest batch of plates but he's talking about a 25 speed orthochromatic dry plate and i've shot a bit of ilford ortho film and uh, you know and it has it doesn't quite have that look but it does do that to the reds and i'd be really quite excited to shoot some dry plates and do you, do you do any dry plate working joseph and how what what what's the kind of difference in 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 his historical oh, development sure. and and where dry plates fit into things. Well, we talked about what happened before wet plate. The dry plates came along. The wet plate lasted from 1851 to about the mid 1880s. In the early 1880s, a, a guy named George Eastman came up with a way to commercially make uh, silver gels and dry plates, and that kind of just destroyed the wet plate industry because it was so much simpler. You could have the plates made you know, at home or you could buy them commercially and then go out and shoot and not have to drag everything with you. So it was an immediate switch to that process. It was even the plates were a little bit faster. So that the, it really killed the wet plate process and me almost immediately. So it was, um, it was, we can thank George Eastman, a founder of Kodak for that from the 1880s on. In fact, I found, uh, I had this funny, thing happened to me. I, you know, I live in this tiny little town and there was going to be a civil war reenactment for Memorial day a couple years ago. And I had to contact this, the person in charge of it was this lawyer that lives in town. And when I told him what I did, he said, Oh, have you done anything with, with dry plates? And I said, no. And he said, well, I have this set of dry plates from, from a uh, customer of mine who wants me to scan them. I don't know how to do it. Can you do that? And I said, sure. He says, yeah, it turns out to be, this family from Wilmington, North Carolina, blah, blah, blah. It was my family. <laughs> I just out of the blue, I got pictures from the, from the early 1900s or late 1800s of some of my descendants, just completely <laughs> wow. out of the blue. So uh, yeah. it was just a, the weirdest thing. But so of course I scanned them all and tried to buy them. They wouldn't sell them to me, but I have the scans. So that's, that's, that's all that matters. Joseph, so going back to your fireman, um, are, are you, are you photographing these sort of and and with your darkroom on site or are you photographing them and doing the enlarging trick you know no I, I no i these are straight out of camera so i took the whole gear and everything they wow. f- when you they're more interested in that you know yeah i'm sure like they you are. were yeah. you were talking about um you know help with large format pat- portraits the weirder it is the more they're interested in doing it you know, if I pulled out a digital camera, they would have been like, nah, yeah, no thanks. Yeah. But the fact that they had to stand there for 10 seconds or eight seconds or whatever, and then they got to watch it come up and the fixer change from negative to positive, that's what made it thrilling for them. So it's like an event as much as it is a photographic session. So maybe I was going to ask you some hints and tips for this sort of portrait, large format portrait. So I guess for this old, this old process, really it's stand still and don't blink. That would be quite helpful. But more generally for large format portraiture, what sort of um, t- tell us a little bit about the equipment you might use, sort of lenses and any hints and tips you might be able to share with listeners. 
Oh, sure. So for a wet plate portraiture, you're, you're right about that. The, the, I like to shoot outside so the exposures are faster. Although I, when I first started shooting wet plate portraits indoors, I was using <clears throat> really high-powered uh, fluorescent lights. And people would start to feel like a chicken McNugget at some point because they're under these lights <laughs> and they're having to sit still for 10 to 15 seconds. And they're trying not to blink, like you said. So that's why the pictures from back then, oh, everyone always looks so stern because they're sitting there as, as still as they can going, I'm paying for this even if I had to move. I'm paying for this even if I move. You know. And but the good thing about blinking is that the blinking over the course of a five to eight second exposure so it's so fast, you just don't even notice it. So blinking's not so bad, but the holding still is the hard part. And they used to clamp people down into chairs and have a big neck brace and all these things to try to you know minimize movement. But ultimately, it was very difficult. Um, so you, it limits the poses that you can make people do. It limits um, the amount of, and then depth of field is nothing. You have to shoot with these lenses wide open. So if you have multiple people in a picture, you're trying to line all their faces up to a parallel plane, which can be a real you know, I had to shoot a group of five people the other day. And I was like, this is going to be a miracle if we can get them all even remotely close to each other. What sort of depth of focus, you know, if you wanted to get people, three or four people lined up side by side and you want to get all their eyes sharp, I mean, how, how level do they have to be? Because you're shooting wide open, presumably, because otherwise they're going to be standing there for hours. Right. Um, well, it depends upon the lens you've got. I mean, right. the, okay. the, on the slow end, the slowest you probably want to be shooting is five, six. And on the fast end, I mean, I have a copy of a Dahlmeyer 3B that was made, you know, in the United States by Eckerd, Optic, Eckerd Optics. And it's, I think its fastest aperture is 3.2, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. um, for my 11 by 14, I've got a gigantic stovepipe of a lens. It's an opaque projector lens made by Bessler that's uh, 450 millimeters at f3.6 or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a monster. Uh, oh. I'll have to take a picture of it so you can see it because it's it's really a beast. Yeah, I mean, if you can share as many, if you, some photographs of your mobile darkroom would be fantastic. And oh, sure. Share yeah, pictures of your kit and stuff as well. Cause yeah, the Lightning lenses. McQueen. Um, Simon will get really excited about your lenses. Oh, I, I already am. And uh, they, the, the, but the, the other part of that is uh, we, which we've not talked about shutters. And I'm guessing in this case, you're just putting something over the front of the, the lens. Is that correct? Correct. You're just using a lens cap for, the, for most of these? Yeah, for the, 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 those, the old brass lenses that you use for this process all had, you know, waterhouse stops for apertures, meaning it's a, it was a metal plate that slid into the lens that had a, a particular size opening to stop the lens down. And there was no shutter. So you, you, would, you would put a cap. Some, they used to put their hats or things over the, over the lens cap and then take it off, make your exposure, cover it back up. And because the exposures were so long, that worked, you know, fine. When you're trying to shoot faster, you know, less than a second is very difficult to take a cap on and off. But usually if you're over a second, it's pretty easy. Um, I have used modern lenses and with modern lenses, it's kind of nice to be able to open and close a shutter. If I'm shooting still life or something, you know, I, I, I use a, a modern lens with a, a shutter all day long. Yeah, I mean, certainly in in some of the shots uh, that you've you've taken, you can tell that they've been taken with it with an older lens because they they tend to be quite sharp in the center and uh, then they they smudge up um, around the edges. And again, that's uh, that's what sort of separates those uh, sailing shots 
from right. from the, the the shots that are done in in camera because the you know, the lens technology for the uh, for the other shots is, is relatively modern. Um, I oh, think yeah. it could it could still be you know seventy years old, but they could they would still give a different look to what you would be doing with these really old lenses. Oh yeah, well, image stabilization is a major <laughs> part of that. <laughs> I mean, most of the sailing shots are just uh, with a 7200 zoom with a, that has image stabilization. And you have, for the sailing stuff, you just have to overshoot because, like I said, everything's moving. So you don't even know what you've got until you get home and review the images. So it's, it's a beast of an event because, I mean, the last couple I've gone out and done, we're out in the ocean all day. And the last one I did, the wind was blowing over 30 miles an hour and everything I owned was covered in salt by the end. So it's it's not a fun that part of it's not fun. The fun part's making, you know, the end result, which is the ten types at the end. So Joseph, what about tips for shooting large format portraits in general? I mean, I've had some experience. I thought it was a couple of years ago it'd be a really cool thing to set up my four by five. I've got a big extendable gray background that I put up in the garden. And then I just got guests at our party to come and stand and I thought, oh, this is easy. And some were some were okay. Some I completely hashed the focus up. And so I think maybe I misjudged depth of focus on some of them, you know. So mm -hmm. one or two came out okay, but I wasn't overly, overly pleased. I had no other lighting. It was, I don't know, maybe I need to rethink the whole thing. So any tips that you can pass on for large format portraiture? Oh, sure. General. Well, first I'll say it's, I just love large format portraiture. I think it's so much fun because it's so different for people to be shot that way than they're so used to being photographed instantly on their phone these mm -hmm. days. They actually have to sit still and actually have to kind of pose a shot and then wait for to cock the shutter, to close the lens, put the holder in, pull out the dark slide. What I find is that it actually, a lot of people have developed this way of they have their Instagram face, you know, they have this face that they can make really quickly and then they drop it. But when you force someone to sit there for 15, 20 seconds while you're getting everything ready to take the picture, a lot of times they let that guard down or they at least change their expression and it. It's more genuine instead of whatever they thought they were going to do. And I, I, that's one of the reasons I love shooting portraits that way. The other reason is that you get to talk to the people longer, you know, especially with web plate, you know, they have to sit there while you make the plate and you do all these things, you have to involve yourself in finding out what kind of person they are, finding something about them to help you, you know, make a portrait that has, says something about them. Um, as far as posing, <clears throat> depth of field is, you know, you want to have some light so that you can stop the lens down so that you don't have, you know, too little depth of field because any forward and backward movement sometimes can, you know, just, just pull the focus off a little bit. You were asking about lenses. My favorite lens for 8x10 is a, a Kodak commercial Ektar 14-inch. It's just incredible for portraits. It has this way of giving tons of detail but not being so razor sharp that people don't like seeing, you know, every pore on their skin being accented, you know, accentuated. Um, that's my favorite portrait lens for both. Uh, 14 inches, so that's uh, uh, that's on 8x10. So what's that in yeah, <laughs> what is it? Three hundred and what? Three hundred. Oh, okay. So three hundred would on on three hundred would be a quote normal lens, wouldn't it? Three hundred and fifty-five point six. About three fifty. Yeah, yeah, three forty. So it's a it's a slight slight telephoto, really, I guess. So maybe 
75, 80 on if you go right down to 35 mil or I don't know, um, 180, 200 on 4.5. Well, that's maybe. the other thing that people are getting used to seeing these cell phone pictures where their noses look big. Yeah. You know, everything's wide angle. Yeah. But to get a, an accurate portrait of someone, you want to actually have a little more telephoto of a lens hmm. um, so that there's no distortion from the front of their face to the back. And yeah. so, so longer lenses are, are useful for that. The, I, have, um, I have a two, I think on my four five, I have a two ten, which, that um, well. yeah, that's, that's, that, that's, that's quite good. I think the trouble I had was when I had people standing in the, in the part, in, in the party, I felt a bit under pressure because, you know, there was loads of people milling around and they clearly wanted to go and have a drink. And, uh, and I was making them stand. If they were sitting, there'd be less chance of their heads wobbling around and think, you know, Oh, right. The, oh, yeah, by, the the time, by the time you focus, then you've got to get the dark slides in. And Well, you, you know, do run it, into people like that, the the impatience of it all. Like, why is this taking so long? Yeah. Don't you know there's digital cameras for this? <laughs> you know, just the, the grief that yeah, you get sometimes. I but, yeah, I was getting that. Yeah. But if you have someone who's really, you know, interested in it and, and wants to go through with it, it's it's an experience like no other. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, talking to the person also comforts them. And you have to remind them, this is not, this is an awkward experience. So if you feel awkward, you're right in line with every other human that's ever done this. You know, that you have to um, give them a little bit of ease because they want to, they're tr they try for you. I mean, it's a collaboration. When you take a portrait of someone, they have to give something and you have to catch it. And that, um, that collaboration can be really wonderful. Some people just don't want to give you anything or they, they're, they try to hide and other people really give you something that you wouldn't even imagine you could get. I mean, some of these musician portraits that I've shot, there was one one woman that I shot who, in rehearsals, she plays a viola. In rehearsals, she was always dressed very frumpy and had big glasses and never looked very kept. And then I set up this photo session in this dorm room I was staying in. And she came, and it was like a completely different person. And she looked like a lion on the film. And I couldn't believe how different she was for that portrait than, than when you see her in real life, you wouldn't recognize her. Yeah, large format portraits are, are just great. Uh, I think the presence that it gives. The other thing that the lenses, one of my favorite things about large format in general is that the lenses make things look effortless because there's so little magnification when you enlarge these hmm. big negatives that the, the, the effortlessness of the, of the lenses on the film just gives them such, I mean, uh, it just gives them more life. I think, I mean, they're just, they look a bit larger than life. Especially, uh, I've been shooting 11 by 14 portraits lately. Contact printing those are just will blow your mind. I mean, they're really, really something. Fact, so, you're, uh, you're, um, so do you get that film through ultra-large format purchases, either through in the States, people like Keith Cannon or something, or in, well, in, in the UK, I know Ilford does it, and every year they do a ULF right, call, right. call for people who want to buy stuff. You know? Yeah, I've been shooting. Um, I got mine from B&H Photo. Okay. I've been shooting HP5 because they had it for cheap. And when I say for cheap, it was like $200 a box yeah. for 25 sheets. So that's <laughs> about $8 a shot. Yeah, that's okay. And, um, that's cheap and, that, uh, that is cheap impossible. because... Yeah, if the, you think of the, uh, some of the instant film out there. The um, the ULF order for Ilford this year was $278 a box. Mm. So I I basically bought out B&H. <laughs> <laughs> for the two hundred dollars a box, I bought. I just said I'm going to have a I'm going to have a credit card bill. I'm going to buy the last, you know. So I have about two hundred sheets of HP five that I'm going to try to go through in the next couple years. 
Um, I'm, tr I'm trying to shoot more of it, so we'll see. It's, it is at some point it becomes you know cost prohibitive, but yeah. but the results I'm getting from it are quite nice. I made the mistake I was trying to. The hardest part about going from eight by ten to eleven by fourteen is that it gets harder and harder to digitize to show off online. Mm, yeah, not that that's all that important to me, but it, it kind of was a stumbling block. Like how do I? I can't use my Epson V suit. But it, it's the way that. that we engage with other analog yes, photographers. I mean, exactly. I, I know you, there must be clearly there are people out there who have no social media engagement. There, there are, and clearly there are photographers out there, analog photographers who have no social media engagement. But to my mind, you know, it's been in this last eight years or so that I've got into Twitter and uh, and heavily into other social medias, and with the Facebook groups and the podcasting. You know, me, this world of analog photographers has just opened up for me, and I've just met so many people, and I can't imagine that I would have ever have done this without, you know, the without the digital backup to help spread the analog love. And, and sharing images is, is part of that, you know. And, and right. You, you don't have to. Of course you don't have to. But, you know, most folks like to just show what they're up to, and, and people chip in, and then you, you don't quite know where the conversation leads to once you start sharing stuff. Right. Well, my solution for digitizing the negatives was at first was to put them on a really large light table that I had purchased. I thought this will be this will be perfect. I can just set up my DSLR and take you know multiple images and stitch it together. And the problem was that my I didn't notice it at the time. Is that my light table had a lot of fall off on the edges, and that translates to look like fogging on the edges of the plate. So I thought I was processing them poorly. I thought I was developing them poorly because. Um, you're basically stuck with tray development when you get above eight by 10 as well. I mean, you can, I went to the hardware store and tried to build a tube, you know, out of plumbing mm -hmm. to, to do a tube processing. And I was not getting great results in that. Plus I was scratching the negatives on the side of the thing. So I went back to doing tray development and I thought I was, you know, processing poorly. And then I made a contact print. Went, oh, and then I look at my light table and go, Oh, there's all this fall off. What an idiot. You know? I, I, so, the, the Epson actually makes a scanner that will allow you to scan 11 by 14 or bigger. Uh, I can't remember what the maximum size is. It's a little bit over 11 by 14. It's like 12 by 16 or something. But it's grossly expensive and, and kind of out of my price range. So I'm not, I think what I'll have to do is just set up like like make a contact print and then take pictures of the contact print. Yeah, with a little light and, uh, stand or something. Yeah, I see lots of folks actually do that. You know, there's some. I think Wayne was doing that, right? Yeah, when taking pictures of his prints. Yeah, and that's and that's that's quite nice. I think you can get you know if you just take a bit of care. It's all right. Well, do that. Because what I would do when I would want to make a darkroom print of something, I would make. I, I have a pretty nice Epson printer for printing digital stuff and printing digital versions of my film shots. Is I would make the best digital print I could make and then take that in the dark room and try to beat it. You know, and a lot of times uh, that kind of challenge made me always beat it. There's sometimes when I can't like if the negative is complicated or it's, it's a lot of dodging and burning and stuff. But yeah. for the most part, I can usually beat the digital version of whatever I print. So um, there we go. I just use that as like a reference to go, Oh, I need more contrast here or this, you know, yeah. you use it for here's the bar. Can I beat yeah. the bar? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I don't really make any digital prints, but that sounds um, that sounds like a good idea. Well, I got into it because um, you know, with tintypes, if when you scan tintype, uh, you can 
kind of improve the tintype in the way that they're like I said before they were kind of dark. You can brighten them up, and then you can enlarge them. I mean, uh, an eight by ten tintype blown up to sixteen by twenty looks amazing. <laughs> I mean, because there's so much information on the plate to begin with, sure. and then um, color prints of those look really fascinating. Um, Simon. Uh, uh, there was another area to cover, but I'm just wondering whether we were going to talk about um, tips for still still life photography. But I'm, I'm wondering whether we ought to hold that for now, and uh, maybe uh, uh, maybe Joseph yeah. can maybe jo- Joseph can share some of his still life tales and tips into the into the Facebook group. I don't, I don't know how do you feel for about sure. it, Joseph. That's fine with, that's fine with me. Um, that's, that's that's great because uh, yeah we we are we are beginning to uh, run run tight 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 on time and I've got so many questions as well so I've, I was going to ask you if you know anything about convertible lenses but I'll, uh, well I think <laughs> I think it's another guest that we're just going to have to get everyone on twice aren't we I think yes <laughs> we'll go to four hour shows which is just nuts really um, okay, I mean well, we we have an email as well and we haven't well read I think that. we should. I think we should we should definitely do the email. Do you want me to read that out? Yeah, then? Let, let's do the email, and then we'll just start to wind things down um, okay. at, at that point. So I've had a, an email from our dear friend of the show, Richard uh, uh, James Thorpe. James Thorpe, yes. <laughs> yeah, he was um, he was talking about the Richard Pickle podcast, which confused us. <laughs> so if it's from James Thorpe, and he was talking about Richard Pickups podcast. So uh, chaps. Very much enjoyed the Pickle podcast, <laughs> the Pickup podcast. Definitely bears a repeat listen, as I think most of these do, because there's just, to, I think I need to listen to them because there's so much information. Definitely bears a repeat listen. I think I understand a bit more about the zone system. We've actually had a zone system free show, uh, James, this time around, although I've just touched the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> but that's what I love about this art form. There's always more to learn. By the way, I really like the distinction of flexible negative as opposed to thin. It seems to make much more sense to my brain as it tries to wrap itself around the zone system. Well, that's a, yeah, let's not just get, let's not open that sentence up now. Uh, lastly, if you'd like to add, lastly, if you'd like to add some estrogen to your podcast, we do. We're, we're trying to add some estrogen to the podcast. Check out a female large format photographer named Lisa Bessanova. Yes, we are aware of Lisa, and I've seen her YouTube videos. And I think she was um, interviewed by uh, Graham and Aidan Rachel on the uh, Sunny 16 podcast sometime earlier this year. She has a smattering of YouTube videos, is well-spoken. That's right. We only want well-spoken people on this podcast and has a true passion for printing, which she does. Cheers, James. Well, thank you very much, James. That's uh, lovely to hear from you. And uh, yeah, she, she's on our radar. I think we were conscious that she'd been on Sunny 16 just recently. I think she's been interviewed by M on Emulsive on his website as well. Um, there's a there's a there's at least one lady we're trying to pin down metaphorically to come on the show, um, but we will aim to inject some more estrogen into the show. I think. I'm glad you slipped that metaphorically there in at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it, uh, by the way, it's, it's Lena rather than Lisa, uh, as, as well. Oh, okay. There's another, oh yes. So I read the email out and didn't pick that up yet. It says Lisa there, but, and then in, in the link to her, uh, a website or YouTube, it is Lena Bessanova. Yeah. So, 
James, you've not done very well. You need to read your negatives for read your, read your emails before <laughs> yeah, you send them. We're, we're a fine example of how to do things properly, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah. There was also a, a follow-up to that as well, uh, where he did say, uh, I should have said pick up instead of pickle, and uh, yeah. and then he says apologies to Richard, Richard Gherkin. Gherkin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he missed up the he, he missed the Lisa typo as well, didn't he? Yeah, Lena Bessanova. Mm. That's it. But uh, no, thank, thanks for uh, getting getting in touch with us there, James. Um, Right, I think I want to uh, quickly thank the people that have contributed to us since la- since last time, and I can't actually remember who I thanked and whenever it was. But this thing about doing shows every every two weeks or so, and sometimes doing them uh, even longer ago um, really confuses me. Um, so I'm going to thank a few people who I may have actually already thanked, but I'm going to thank him again because they deserve thanking. Um, and uh, so we're looking at uh, Jim Wharton. Uh, love the podcast keep up the good work thank you Jim uh, Christopher J May um, and actually I've got two Christopher J May so uh, I may have done this one before may have not I don't know but uh, a, a very late uh, coffee f- uh, this week gentlemen or is it a latte coffee uh, anyways oh. <laughs> um, thank I'm a, an Americano with milk uh, kind of guy myself um, and uh, anyways thanks for uh, another great episode. Really enjoyed hearing Greg's approach to large format. So that'll be the uh, the Greg Opst uh, podcast. And then uh, a week or so later, um, another enjoyable podcast, gents. So that will be the, uh, the the Richard Pickup one. And also uh, talk of the devil. Uh, James Thorpe also uh, donated to us as well. So uh, thank you, Jim, Christopher twice, and and James again. Um, really appreciate your help there. And, and if you do wish to uh, donate to us then you just go to www.ko-fi.com and search uh, for us although apparently the search function doesn't work very well so uh, you can always just go to the show notes show notes and just click on a link and you can find us there hmm. and richard you will be forever known as richard pickles <laughs> And you, know, you you mentioned earlier about going going back and uh, listening. I mean, I I I I certainly am going to go back. But so people were talking about that show to me, um, which was very very much uh, about the zone system, and what they were coming out with and saying that oh I learned this from that. I'm thinking I've forgotten. That. <laughs> <laughs> so so I I will be I will be making a return to that one and uh, yeah. listen listen to it. It's actually it's different when you're listening than when when you're making it. I think at times as well. So well there you go. There you go. Um, okay, so uh, other news. Um, this is actually, I'm going to effectively do a shout out now. Uh, as of, I think it was actually yesterday. Uh, yesterday, I just realised now, uh, people don't know when we're doing the recording here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Thursday, the 8th of August, and uh, yesterday being the 7th, uh, the uh, classic camera revival uh, did a um, large format 101. Um, which is pretty much what we called our first episode. Um, but they've done a, a, a different take on things. There are some things that are going to be quite similar to what we talked about, and there are definitely some areas where they, they talked uh, about other aspects of uh, large format, particularly more on the on the, the, the camera side of things. Um, and I think that's a... a if you if you enjoy listening to this podcast, I think you should absolutely check that podcast out. So that's the um, classic camera revival, and it's the latest one, and it's all the, and it's uh, large format one hundred and one, and it's uh, it's a good listen. And I think a few of our viewers may sort of 
prick their ears up on a couple of things that they say um, we have a post in our group so if anybody wishes to comment on any of the things and uh, thank you for what they've done and so on, uh, then just go to the Facebook group Photography with... No, no, not that one. <laughs> That's another group. Um, the Large Format Photography Podcast. Um, and uh, they can say things uh, about uh, the podcast and thank uh, uh, Alex Lux and James Lee for, for the entertaining episode that they produced there. I don't know. Have you had a chance to listen to this one uh, yet, Andrew? No. Well, it's worth listening to. Okay, um, so do. so that that's it for for my my shout outs. Um, Andrew, have you got any shout outs? Yeah, uh, just the one really, um, which is more than I normally have. But I, I have been chatting online with uh, another YouTuber, Craig Sheeks, and uh, Craig. I always quite like watching Craig Craig's uh, videos. There. They're a bit deadpan in a way, and he's, he seems a lovely chap. And uh, and, and he's uh, he, he he finds the most, uh, in many ways, mundane subjects to make a YouTube video about. And then he he picks picks up his large large format camera and uh, wanders around looking for his composition. And uh, it, it, and they're very kind of gentle videos. And if you if you've not checked out Craig's work on YouTube, then uh, give him give him a shout out. I think he's an educationalist as well. And um, I know he's not uh, a, he's not averse to coming on the show at some point, but uh, if you're not familiar with Craig Sheeks, S H E A K S, uh, just look him up on YouTube. Actually, you, you mentioned about coming on the show. We've got so many people that. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I haven't. It's, it's that, I, I haven't. I haven't given him a date. It's fine. It's just no, no. I was, I was dang, dangling I'll, in the air somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. No. Um, so, Joseph, have you have you got any shout outs you want to say hello to or anything on those lines? Uh, well, just a couple. Um, I want to thank obviously Mike Rosso of the Film Photography Podcast. I think without him, nobody would know who I am. So I appreciate that. Um, also thanking Darren Riley, who, if you haven't heard it yet, made a song using both Matt Marash's and my ums from the show, which is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. I think it's the title of the song is called Um. And uh, I sent you both uh, a link to it on YouTube. So if you want to put it on there, that's fine. Um, I, I can laugh at myself, so I'm happy to hear <laughs> to hear it. And he did a wonderful job. It's, he, he's he's very clever, so it's it's very funny. He is. He's a very talented songwriter. He produce. He makes classic three minute pop songs that rhyme, doesn't he? Do you know what I mean? And they yeah. have a oh, sort yeah. of they have a sixties vibe to them. Many of them, and they're really good. And the, the other thing I would say is, uh, I, I was we've been talking about large format portraiture, portraiture. The best way to learn more about large format portraiture is to just look up the books of the old you know, masters of the 20th century, like Arnold Newman and Yusuf Karch and Philip, Philippe Halsman and um, Avedon and those people. And look how they pose people, look how they set things up and look how much detail there is in those portraits and what you can get out of them. That's how I learned most of what I know about large format photography is just by studying. I was, I was fortunate enough when I lived in Connecticut to have a, a interlibrary loan system that was just out of this world. I mean, I was able to procure books to look at that were worth thousands of dollars, but they were just inside the the library system and nobody seemed to care. So it was just really amazing that I got to see all these amazing portraits for free, basically, and study them and figure out what made them great and try to move on from there. Right. Well, uh, 
I've, I've got to say, uh, Joseph, you've been a fantastic guest. Uh, oh, thank you. Another fantastic guest, I should, I should say, because we've had so many. It's it's just we've been very blessed with uh, yep. the, the the guests that we've been been having, and um, it's it's been great having you on on the show. I've certainly learned so much today. I mean, I certainly have learned the difference between an amber type and a tin type. You know, so mm. I've I've always been curious about uh, what what these things are, and uh, so that 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 was good, and and so many other 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 areas. Um, so. Uh, I think that's it. We're pretty much coming to the end. So I think this is a good time to say to you, Joseph, if if you want to tell people how people can see your work, we've mentioned your, your, your website, but please do do so again. And any anywhere else that people can see your work and, and so on. Oh, sure. Well, I'm findable really in two places. My website, which is www.josephbrunges.com, and that's spelled J-O-S-E-P-H-B is on boy, R-U-N-J-E-S.com. And I'm on Flickr also as just Joseph Brunges. And those are probably the, th- the two easiest places to find me. Um, I'm happy to answer any more questions about wet plate that anyone has. I, you know, I teach it, so I'm um, always happy to give out information. I'm not a stingy, you know, these are my secrets type of person. I'm happy to tell anybody what how I get the results I get. That's great. And we'd, we'd really appreciate if you could drop a, a few more bits and bobs into our into our Facebook group. And, uh, oh, sure. Just, uh, We're happy a, to. Uh, that, that, that's great. I mean, we have a, a small um, Facebook group, but it's very vibrant. It's ve- Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've noticed it's very active. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be great if you if you if you could do that for us. That'd be fantastic. Um, OK, um, so continuing the wind down, uh, Andrew, uh, mm. apart from here, um, where can other people uh, hear you and see your work? You can hear me pretty much every week with Cory Cannon at the on the Lensless podcast. That's normally goes out on a Sunday evening. A couple of times I've been absent, but mostly on there. And you can find me on most media platforms as Warboy Snapper on Flickr, on Twitter, Instagram. Um, yep, occasional occasional WordPress blog. I think. Okay. Uh, you can find, well, you can hear me every week on the Classic Lenses uh, podcast. Mm. Um, and then there's, uh, that's it for appearances as such, but I also have a website where I sell things, uh, which is simonforsterphotographic.co.uk. I have an, an eBay site as well. Um, but if you want to see... I've got to say, I've ever seen, the more I talk about photography, the less photos I, I seem to do. It's, it seems to be an odd one there, but there you go. But uh, I do put things out on Instagram, and uh, you can find me on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on Twitter as Simon Four. That's uh, Simon and F O R. Uh, I'm on Flickr as well, which I've, I've not added anything in there for ages, and I really, really need to do that, especially now I'm paying for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, that's just about it. Um, Got to say thank you to Kevin McLeod, who produces our music, which is uh, Two Finger Johnny. Um, and uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time. So I hope you've enjoyed the, the podcast. It'd be great if you can join us again back then. So uh, goodbye. Are we- <laughs> Are you waiting for everyone else to say but I know you're going to say goodbye, yeah. but we thought oh. we'd just leave it with you. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I thought somebody had flushed the toilet, actually. There was something there. <laughs> something really odd, peculiar was going on there with the recorder. I'm not sure what was going on there.